This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I made it a point to only publish in predatory journals. $10 billion a year in revenue, and those commercial publishers make pure profit margins. It's just profit that goes into shareholders' pockets. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about a new White House policy that will tear down the paywall on scientific journals. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 184. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, I have some big news that I want to share. Good news, I hope. We are going out into the wild to interact with listeners. <laughs> this has not happened since before the pandemic, I don't think. So uh, tell, tell everybody where we'll be, Josh. This is really momentous for me. All right, Dan. Well, we will be attending the American Society for Cell Biology Cell Bio 2022 meeting in Washington, D.C. from December 3rd through the 7th. So we wanted to especially thank Promega, who is sponsoring our visit. We're going to be hanging out at their booth, um, specifically on Sunday and Monday of the conference from 12 to 3 p.m. If you're going to be there, you can stop by. We will be hanging out, chatting with you about grad school, advisors, careers, beer, whatever's on your mind. We would love for you to stop by the Promega booth at the ASCB Cell Bio Conference. I will be cruising around looking for cool swag, uh, probably practicing <laughs> my conference Twitter skills that we have learned about on the show. It's going to be amazing for me, Josh. You know, the last time I went to ASCB was probably 2005 or six. It was while I was a grad student. So it's been nearly 20 years. It's really amazing. And that was in D.C. too, it was wasn't in it? in D.C., that's right. No, I'm, I'm ready to hit up all the old spots. I'm sure most of them are still there, Dan. Well, this is my first ASCB. I'm excited. Uh, this is a new thing we're trying. This is a first for us going to a big conference like this. So if you're going to be there, uh, let us know. Shoot us a, a tweet or an email letting us know just so we uh, know to keep an eye out for you. Uh, if Twitter goes down, we're not on Mastodon yet. So not yet. <laughs> find another way to contact us. All right, Dan, we wanted to uh, to get that out of the way, but also I wanted to talk about this beer that we have because this is uh, also something kind of new for me. This is not this is a little bit outside my lane in our beer segment this week. Yeah, let's hear about it, Josh. It's pretty high gravity, and I'm enjoying it so far. All right, well, I got this beer not because I thought I would like it, but I'm trying to expand our uh, repertoire here. So this is from Boulevard Brewing in Kansas City, Missouri. I've actually been there, Dan. I've been to Boulevard Brewing, a great brewery. This is called the Sixth Glass Quadruple Ale. Have you had a quadruple ale, Dan? I don't know that I have. I've certainly had Belgian doubles. I think I've had a triple. Uh, I don't know that I've had a quadruple, but it has to be more... Belgian than a triple is? Is that how they number these? That's right, Dan. And maybe our listeners have heard of beers that are described as as doubles, triples, and this the quadruple. And really, this is kind of an unscientific measure of the relative strength of a beer. And so I guess quadruple means it's not necessarily four times stronger um, than a regular Belgian beer, but it just means it's pretty strong beer. And this one, 
is no exception. Um, I read, Dan, that typically a quadruple is classified as a beer that has an alcohol by volume of 9 to 14%. And so Yikes. this one... <laughs> this one clocks in at 10.2% ABV. And can you taste that? Can you taste the... Well, it is deceptive because there, there's a good bit of sugar, residual sugar in it, and it's a pretty thick beer. And so I don't taste this strong alcohol taste, but it is certainly not a light sipping beer. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Do you know what it reminds me of, Josh? I, I just thought of this. You've seen the chocolate fountain at, at like the buffet place where the chocolate's flowing over. This is like the caramel version of that, except cold. Mm. It is just like so thick and syrupy that that's what this tastes like to me. Well, I think that actually is part of what the folks at Boulevard, the brewers at Boulevard were going for. So the the art on the glass sort of has this devilish, there's little pitchforks and little devil horns. Um, and, and so the marketing speak on this beer, they say, our quadruple ale, also meant for the mature connoisseur, is a deep and mysterious libation, dark auburn and full-bodied, its sweetness deceptive. Uh, and I would totally agree with that, Dan. You You are really you're initially greeted with this sweetness that almost masks this uh, high alcohol content. I agree with you. I'm going to sip this one very slowly and I may not finish it. We will try to stay upright during the rest of the show. Uh, Josh, (laughs) I want to take this opportunity to once again, thank Promega who we will be visiting in their booth. As you mentioned, Uh, if you're exploring a new path or taking next steps or thinking about a career change, you definitely want to visit promega.com slash hello career. They have information on applying to internships, nailing job interviews, or learning about your next steps. The professional skills and development page has all the resources you need to jumpstart your career. And one more time, that's promega.com slash hello career. All right, Dan, lots of exciting things. Why don't we get on to our topic of the week? All right, Dan. So the, in the intro, you made me think we were going to go subversive today. So tell me a little bit about this interview you did. Yes. I talked to Heather Joseph. She's the executive director of Spark. And I had to look this up, Josh. It's not super easy to find. It's spelled S-P-A-R-C, but it stands for the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition. But the reason I reached out to Heather is because back in August, there was a White House memo that was released that was making some changes to how we access scientific research that's funded by the federal government. And as you know, Josh, that's a lot of research in the U.S. And so uh, we've had these conversations about open access and about uh, equitable access and things like that. This White House policy actually addresses many of these things. So uh, Heather works at this organization that is advocating for these open access policies, and she had a lot to tell me about the policy in the memo. All right, Dan, well, let's take a listen. Today, I'm joined by Heather Joseph. She's the executive director of Spark. Heather, welcome to Hello PhD. Thanks. It's nice to be here. And would you do us the honor of telling us a little bit of your background and a little bit about Spark before we get started talking about our topic of open access today? Yeah, sure. My background is actually in publishing initially. I worked for 15 years as a journal publisher, mainly for nonprofit organizations, but Took a little detour and worked for the largest commercial publisher, Elsevier, for one whole year before, yeah, before moving into what I'm doing now at Spark, which is really we're an advocacy organization and we work on updating the publishing system, which is woefully out of date. And that's so cool. So your background, you have seen both sides of this, both the the push for public access and then from the inside of one of these major publishers, probably the push against it. 
Absolutely. Okay, well, we're going to get into that. For some of our listeners who maybe are newer to the scientific publishing world, maybe they're undergrads or they haven't published a lot of papers, can you just give us the the overview, the kind of how the bill becomes a law? How does a a piece of scientific research become a paper? Um, Sure. So the short story is, you know, you're on a campus, you're either a grad student, postdoc, or, you know, a faculty member, researcher, you have an idea, and you do, you want to do research on it, right? You want to do some investigating. Generally, you get funding. A lot of times it's from the federal government or a public funder, sometimes from a foundation. They set you up, you get to do the work. When you've completed your work, you want to tell the world what you found out, right? That's the whole point of doing the research is to be able to share what you found so that other people can see it, build on it, right? That's how the world advances. Once you decide you're going to tell the world what you found. The major way we communicate right now in science is by writing up an article and submitting that article to a journal, which will you know publish that paper, decide whether that paper should get out there into the world. And a, a couple things happen in that process that, that make it look a little bit different than if you decided you were going to write an article, for example, and submit it to a newspaper. First and foremost, you write the article as a part of doing your work, right? You don't get paid extra for writing an article. It's not like a journal will come to you and say, I'll give you you know, $100 to write you know, the, the next greatest article. You write the article, it gets vetted, right? Someone has to decide this is worth publishing. It's worth putting in the journal. You would think it would be the journal that does that, but actually the process is done through something called peer review, where people who are presumably just like you and have expertise in the area that you're doing research, take a look at your paper and make a decision one way or another. This is worth getting out there in the world or it's not getting out there, worth getting out there in the world. That vetting, right? That peer review is done also for free by grad students, postdocs, researchers, faculty. And then the journal decides based on those, the, the reviews, it's ready to go out there in the world and the journal will then publish the paper. And publishing a paper in 2022 essentially means putting a copy on the publisher's website and making it available to anybody who has money to pay to subscribe to read those results. It used to mean rolling printing presses and shipping materials all over the world. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, Yep. Totally based on a paper-based model. I want to tease out a little bit here. You say uh, the research, you write up these papers no one pays you for them, and they are peer-reviewed, and no one pays the peer reviewers. But the reality is, they are getting paid by the same grants, right? They're, the research to write that paper, whoever the funding agency is, is paying effectively. Is that not true? Yes, they're not paid extra to write papers. I think pe- a lot of people think of publishing as I write a book, I get paid oh, I see writing that book. Absolutely, research. There aren't royalties. Consider. Communicating results is part and parcel of doing the research. If I, if I do research and I don't or can't or won't tell you what I found out, what was the value to the funder for funding that research in the first place? It's absolutely considered part of the job. And there are a lot of reasons that scientists would want to publish. I think it's a great way to get collaborations. It's a great way to have people build on what you found. Um, is notoriety. I think that's motivating to a lot of scientists. Are there other reasons that people want their papers to be published? Well, I think the, the the biggest issue with the publishing system that we have right now is, yeah, all those things are true, but there's a 
sort of a fundamental pragmatic piece of why people want to publish in journals. And that is because future funding decisions and tenure and promotion are inextricably tied up in publishing a paper in not just a journal, but a journal with a high reputational um, impact, if you will. That is perfect because that, I think, helps us understand the phrase publish or perish. Exactly right. It's not research or perish, do great science or perish, it's publish or perish. So uh, if, if that publication doesn't make it through that whole process you described, then it's as if it didn't happen, at least in terms of the career opportunity for that scientist. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, that is something that uh, y- you can easily see what it's setting people up to do. You have to get your paper out there, right, in order to advance in your career. And you're, you're incented to do that. So we ended, we ended up with a, a, a publishing system that's optimized for volume. There are a lot of journals out there publishing a lot of papers. It's often very hard to understand what's high quality, what's not high quality, because the incentives are just simply to do it and do it at volume. It's so fascinating. I'm thinking back to even in graduate school, some programs have publication requirements. You need to have this many first author papers or this many papers that you're first or second author on. So it's even built into that uh, training model, which feels a little bit funny. Yeah, well, you know, you could you could understand again. You you made the great observation that it used to be about printed journals on paper. That was the only way that we could communicate fundamental ideas, right, from research. That there, there's nothing inherently wrong with journals. At least I hope not, having spent quite a bit of time actually working on them. But in a, it, what's really interesting to me is that since the advent of the internet, we can communicate almost instantly and do about almost everything, but not so fast when it comes to communicating scientific research, right? We're still operating as if the, the, the barriers of I've got to slow down, get this, commit it to paper on a printing press, bind it into a book and then mail it to you around the world is okay. There's all these delays that are kind of built into the system that we simply don't need to have in 2022. And it is, if we can start unpacking some of the troubles with the current process, the, the system that we're working under. The first one I think we've talked about is it's expensive. And I know yeah. that there have been recent decisions made by even university libraries at major research institutions. We can't afford to subscribe to all of these journals that we would like to subscribe to them. They have, uh, they may have our own research in them, but it's too expensive. And forget about the, the smaller universities or places around the world that may have value in this research, but they just can't pay to get it. Absolutely right. We, we're, we're in a world where access to research is limited by who can pay and who can't pay in order to read the journals. I think people will, will be really surprised to understand. You think of scholarly journals, scientific journals, as kind of niche, right? How many people actually read these? Like how big a, you know, a deal, how, how expensive can they be? Journal publishing is a $10 billion a year revenue producing. With a B. With a B. That's roughly the same revenue that the National Football League in the U.S. throws off every year. It is huge business, big business. And for those publishers that do this on a volume basis, the commercial publishers, the Elseviers, the Wileys, the Springer, because the authors don't get paid extra to write the articles, the peer reviewers don't get paid to vet the, the research. It's a high profit margin business. So $10 billion a year in revenue. And those commercial publishers make 
pure profit margins upwards of 30%, sometimes 40%. It's just profit that goes into shareholders' pockets. That is a real issue, right? We've commoditized sharing knowledge and sharing research in a way that it was never intended to we were never intended to do. Is that 10 billion just from subscriptions or are there other revenue streams that they have access to? It is, it's mainly subscriptions. Spark, the organization that I work for is at its core, we're a membership organization of libraries on college and university campuses. The interesting thing about college and university libraries is that we represent about two thirds, maybe more of the customer base, the revenue base for that 10 billion. Wow. We are, we are it. <laughs> so we have a big vested interest and we want to get people on our campuses access to the latest, the best work and research that you need to do your work on campus. Super, it's getting more and more expensive and impossible for us to be able to do that. So when a university or, or even an individual can't afford this subscription, what happens? Why, why is that bad? Just lay it out for us. Well, I, I think there's nobody who's listening to this, I would wager, that hasn't had this experience, right? You're either doing research on something or you want to find something out about, I don't know, someone in your family was diagnosed with something. First thing you do is a search on you know, DuckDuckGo or Google or your search engine of choice to see what you can find out. You get a list of, paper, of results and you you kind of, you'll find papers and you're like, okay, this one looks like I might be interested in. It looks like it's what I need. You click on it. You see the abstract. Yeah, this looks good. I think I want to read it. I want to see the full text. Boom. You get a paywall that says pay me the 10, wall. 20, 30, 40, $50 for the privilege of seeing if this is something that may be of use to you. I don't know any grad student and very few faculty members who can af afford to pay 40, 50 bucks a pop to see if the paper is something that they they might want to use in their research. What we know, what we see on our campuses, what do you do when that happens? And I will say across the board, people will say, well, sometimes I'll go right to the author and ask them, can you send me a copy? For, can you shoot me a PDF, please? That happens. I'll go to a colleague at a institution that I know has a subscription or you know, my sister's at another school. So I'll ask her for one. But what happens most often? Oh, we're, we have pirate websites now. Of that's um, right. We've talked about it on the show. Really fascinating that we have a black market for PDFs where you can go, you know, to get that. But what actually happens even more often than using any of those mechanisms is we hear time and time again, I skip it, I skip that, and I go on to something that my institution has access to. We end up with a world where. Researchers are doing work on what they have access to. Our teachers are teaching our students based on what they have access to rather than what they might need to know. And we're probably repeating things that have already been done. We're probably missing things that should be done. You know, and I think to myself, as you describe that situation, I'm looking in Google maybe and a paper comes up. I have never done a literature search where I only needed one paper. Every paper leads to five more papers, right? And and so this is not a question of $50, which is a lot of money. This is a question of hundreds and hundreds of dollars for one avenue of inquiry. Yeah, it's, there, there are equity issues just left, right, and center in terms of when, you know, when you, it, it sounds glib for me to shorthand, we end up with a system where people who can afford to pay get access to knowledge. At the core of the work and the advocacy that my organization does is the belief that sharing knowledge is a human right. 
Mm -hmm. right? That everyone everywhere should be able to benefit from knowledge sharing, whether it's contributing your voice to the conversation or or seeing and accessing the voices of, of your colleagues around the world. The system that we have now basically says we're shut off at the access point if you don't have enough money to pay. And even in new models that are coming up to support taking down those paywalls, we're too often seeing a little bit of a dance, mainly from the commercial publishers who are saying, all right, we'll share the articles more broadly. Like we're willing to take those paywalls down so anybody can access them, but we're not willing to give up those profit margins. So that barrier for collecting money just gets moved to a different point in the system. And what we're tracking now is that it's starting to get added onto the beginning of the system. So rather than interesting, yeah, rather than paying to access, they're now asking authors pay us to publish, right? So, and you you actually hit on something when you said, well, wait, don't research funders, you know, aren't you, aren't you paid by your research funder to do the research and actually write the article? That's what publishers are banking on in a system that says, okay, well, you're complaining about the paywalls. We'll take those down. So now we're going to say, pay us up front. The funders are giving you plenty of money. So give me anywhere from $500 for a, and a quote-unquote affordable publication charge to if you want to publish in a premier journal like Nature and share your paper openly with no paywall, it's $11,000 up front per article. Oh, my God. So, and, and that comes out of the grant. And so there are probably researchers willing to pay that money to have that top-tier journal. Yes. And we're just replacing issues of equity from who can access science with whose voice gets heard and, and gets heard the loudest. The incentive that that creates is so gross because... That's a good word for it. <laughs> I, I need to publish. And if the question is, if I just pay enough, and then and then what incentive does that create for the journal? Does Do they get paid before or after the article is accepted for publication? In, in general, it's mainly a publication fee for accepted articles. Although some journals are now charging that at the point of submission for consideration. Both are both are fraught, right? I, if I am the journal and my revenue is dipping, I just need to choose the reviewers who are more likely to let things through, right? This is the incentive structure that is being created. Your, your use of the word incentive structure is exactly right, right? The, the incentives that this kind of model creates for publishers is, again, to increase the volume. The more articles that I publish, the more money I make. So it shifts that incentive from wanting to get this out to as many people as possible. So as many people can, well, as many people who can pay me as possible to I'm now incentivized to actually churn up as many papers as I possibly can and publish them in new journals that are springing up all the time just to keep that flow going. Okay. Well, I'm going to breathe deeply into a paper bag for a minute. Could you tell us there was a 2013 memorandum out of, I'm guessing the Obama administration. And it was an attempt to shift this a little bit. Can you talk about that memorandum and what it tried to do and maybe what it achieved? Yeah. So I think the good news is that this system is way out of whack and that research funders by and large have recognized for quite some time that something needed to be done. And that as the, the people who are paying for the research, they really hold the keys to the kingdom in terms of being able to change the rules of the road, right? So we have, you know, private foundations on the one hand, like the Gates Foundation, who people are familiar with, but let's put them aside for a minute and 
look at the largest funder of scientific research, which is federal governments. And here in the U.S., the federal government funds about $80 billion a year in research. Um, great investment. That money goes, you know, by and large to fund researchers, investigators on college and university campuses here in the U.S. to do research. That's great. The thing to think about, though, with that, we say the government funds research, you fund research, we fund research. It's taxpayer dollars that our money is used to fund this $80 billion. And we're fine doing that. But that has really given the federal government, I think, a a starting point to think about, is is our investment in research giving the kind of return that we want it to have, right? So they were thinking about it very pragmatically. And in 2013, the Obama administration kind of looked at this and said, you know, wait a minute, if if we invest all this money in research, and at the end of the day, the people whose tax dollars funded it can't get access to the results that their tax dollars, uh, the research their tax dollars have funded, we have not just an equity issue there, we've got a return on investment issue, right? We're investing- we're investing as taxpayers with the expectation that that research is going to be out there, used, built on, and improve our lives, right? It's solving problems, like you know, that, anything that, that you can think of in the scientific realm. So the Obama administration said, we're going to start really thinking about saying, okay, if you agree to take money to do research, we have a couple of expectations for how you're going to share those results. And in, in the, the policy that's been kind of the law of the land up until very recently, they essentially said, if you take money from the federal government to do research, you have to agree to make a copy of the article that reports on those final results freely available to anybody, the American public, but also anybody, no later than a year after it's published in a scientific journal. Wait a minute, explain that a little bit to me. A copy of the paper. What's the difference between the paper and a copy of the paper? I don't understand that distinction. Uh, but I'm thinking the journal could have some special formatting or or maybe they've changed the layout or oh. they have their own packaging of that text and those images that might be different from what is open access. Is that right? Yes. I think the, the essence of the policy is that the contents of the article, the conclusions, the basic, you know, the basic article, the think about what you submit. If you write papers, you submit what's called your manuscript, right? Your author's manuscript, and the publisher says, we're going to publish this. And then on the publisher side, before it's put on the web, it's formatted, it's copy edited, it's, you know, clean. They typeset it or whatever it is yeah. people do with computers. Right, right. The Obama administration essentially said, what we care about is the content, right? The actual findings. We don't, if publishers want to do value add and charge and, you know, continue, they get an exclusive distribution period. And they can charge for anything fancy they do to your your actual manuscript. All we care about is that we have a copy of those results in the form of the author's manuscript no later than a year after it's published in a journal for people to read and we'll be happy. Okay, so that year carries a lot of weight, right? There's there's a loaded term there. Tell me about what happened with the, the 12 within a year statement. So as you could imagine, within a year in some scientific disciplines might as well be within an eon, within a decade, within a millennium, because science moves really quickly. Think about anything to do with public health, anything to do with a biomedical research, climate change, how quickly are we experiencing, you know, the massive impacts. A year for 
many. COVID, COVID comes up a lot in these documents as a, as was, a motivating this factor. Was, this was, I think this was the acid test, right? I mean, there was already pressure to do two things, right? So one is the, the Obama policy said there are two salient points, make a copy or make a version of the paper, the manuscript available within a year for people to read, right? Assuming that we're, all we do with research is read it like we're reading, you know, Moby Dick on paper. That is not how the vast majority of scientists and researchers consume and use scientific journal papers. They're digital for a reason because they should be more useful. So there were two pressure points. That year embargo that got away to year went out the window during COVID when, you know, within minutes of the coronavirus, the recognition by science ministers around the world that we've got a global pandemic on our hands. The first thing that science ministers did in March of 2020 was to get together and to say, okay, in order to get a handle on what's happening, we have to understand this virus. So the genome was sequenced and the data from that genome was shared openly, immediately available, freely available. The science ministers then said, we have to put together a machine-readable database of all coronavirus-related papers that we can think of so that we can start using AI, we can start using all kinds of computational technology to text and data mine the corpus of knowledge on coronavirus to figure out what this thing is and how we can best attack it and deal with it. We didn't have one, right? We had to go public, they had to go publisher by publisher to identify papers, negotiate the rights to not just read those papers with human eyeballs, but to put them in a database uh, in a format where the knowledge could actually be used. And I think that changed everything for, for how policymakers think about articles is we can't, we don't have the luxury of thinking that we can do the old fashioned thing and treat them like paper artifacts in a digital world. You, you just couldn't use them fast enough. I, I think it's worthwhile for people to recall what those early days of COVID were like, at least even from a person who's not researching COVID, you know, every day counted. We were wiping down our mail and our groceries because we just didn't know how this virus spread. And waiting a year for that information would have been unconscionable. But but the same is true if I have a family member with a type of cancer, right? I don't want to wait a year. They may not have a year. So all of this research, your climate change example, I think is a great one. This It sounds like this must be published within one year, turned into an actual, we will not publish it for one year. Is that what happened with the publisher? What ended up happening was, you know, not a lot changed. Some publishers have been moving towards, you know, these models where they're, they're doing open sharing faster, but for a high price tag. What the policy did was kind of, I think, lay down a marker to say the direction we need to be going in is we've got to enable better you know, open sharing. And I, I would think about this in sort of the context of a larger movement towards more open sharing of data, of, you know, software, of code, of all the, the tools that scientists use to solve big, complex problems. In order to do it quickly and, you know, as efficiently as possible, openly sharing these materials builds an interdisciplinary kind of loop of sharing that it, it speeds up discovery. And, you know, COVID was a great proof of concept of that. And I think that really put pressure on the current administration to say, we have a commitment to, we're never going back. We don't want to go back to where we have to 
stop in the middle of a pandemic and ask permission. In case of the emergency, break glass and free knowledge. That's not the way we should be doing this. We should reset those rules. Excellent. And and this is why we're talking to you today specifically because on August 25th, there is a new memorandum from the executive office of the president. Tell us what is what is in this new memorandum? What does it change? What doesn't it change? Give us some hope here. So the Biden-Harris administration, as you said, issued essentially policy guidance updating the, the Obama-era memo, which was great. It's, it essentially said everything they said in the Obama-era stands, but we're going to build on it and make some changes, some improvements that we think will make a big difference. First and foremost, no more 12-month embargo. No more waiting period. Publicly funded, taxpayer-funded science, articles that report on it are required to be made immediately, freely available to everyone the day they are published. That is it, starting in 2025. They're giving publishers a little bit of lead time to get their minds around this. But first and foremost, no more. They literally said in the policy guidance, there should be no daylight between taxpayers' investment in science and their ability to access the results, that that is law of the land. And that is for every discipline, every piece of scientific research that the federal government funds. It's not just, so I want to talk a little bit about the open access, because you you mentioned data, and it really spends a lot of time talking about data and about why it's important and how we're supposed to get to it. Can you talk about how data is different from just the text? Yep. I mean, first, the, the second piece, the second big change in the memo was to remove that so that people can read it. They require that these articles are not just made available. Typically, you would you would put a PDF out there, right? And say, that's free. I'm sharing it. It's free. It's You can read it. You can do everything you want with it. You can't text data mine. It, PDFs are not AI ready. We're just going to say that. The, the Biden-Harris administration said, we want it in a, a format so that we're never behind the eight ball again in a global pandemic. Understanding that what we're doing is no longer treating articles like you're just taking a printed paper and putting it online in, in the form of a PDF. What you're doing is creating uh, digital articles that are actually data, right? You want to use articles as I data. See. So that's text data mining. You, you can use every component, right? You can really unlock the value of that. So that's an enormous change. And then along with this, right, one of the big issues that we had, you know, that was really highlighted during COVID is the public's trust in science is not at its at, at historic levels of high, right? Like there's a lot of concern that science moves quickly and you need to be able to do a couple things. One, you want to validate and verify that what this person said they found in this research is actually what they found, right? So you want to be able to take the underlying data that they use, that they base their conclusions on. You got You want to be able to reproduce their results. That is the whole ball of wax when it comes to scientific integrity, being able to trust. It's trust, but verify. If you don't have access to the data that the article is reporting on, there's no way to do that second step of verifying, let alone reproduce. And the Biden administration said, we're going to require that that data that you need to validate and reproduce the results of articles also needs to be made freely and openly available on day one, along with those articles. So they went a long way past where we were with the last policy guidance and into not just openness for, you know, all of the good reasons that we just discussed, 
But we want to go even farther. We want to use openness as a tool to improve research integrity, trust in science, and the ability for the community to really be able to actively build on things quickly and in a trustworthy manner. They're really explicit about that. I, you know, they talk about the public access, increased public access, and they talk about increasing public trust. I think increasing public access feels like a measurable goal. Increasing public yeah. trust feels more tricky for obvious reasons. We all live in the, in the political climate of the U.S. right now. Some of the things that they pointed out that they were going to do to increase trust is to make sure that all the information related to the authorship, funding, affiliations, development status of the research, all of these things about the researchers are clear with the research yeah. publication. So if I am taking money from a corporate donor to test this drug, it should be really obvious to the person reading, hey, I have a vested interest in how this turns out. Bingo. Being able to understand who the author is and the authors are of, of the research, where they're coming from, who they're funded by, all of those things are important components of really, yeah, I don't know how else better to say it than the more information you know about the origin of the work, the more you can trust it. And they spend a little bit of time talking about something I'm not exactly familiar with, a digital persistent identifier. And I think this yeah. relates to what you were talking about with digitizing the research. But can you talk about what a digital persistent identifier does? So all it is, is essentially, it's a tag, right, that says, this tag represents this article. So there's a digital object identifier, this paper gets a number, so it can the be DOI. DOI, exactly. They're all DOIs are used right now mainly to track a paper. But the persistent identifiers are DOIs kind of on steroids. So they're used for a variety of different things. One is an ORCID identifier. So not only do you have to know who the author is, but you can track that author. You can see their works. Think about the power of connecting a persistent digital identifier with a paper so that you could find that paper and that author. And then that author finds out something more or wants to do an addendum to the paper or make a correction or add an erratum. Instead of you having to find somewhere on the web by doing a search for their name or whatever and getting lucky enough to find any subsequent information about something. Or that collaboration. Was, exactly. Right. You now can build that digital trail, right? So you can connect the dots. What we're really interested in with persistent digital identifiers is right now, the, the way we're communicating science and research is by publishing an article and saying, this is the most important thing. This static moment in time represents the be-all and end-all. But that's not how the world works, and it's not how we learn. What we're interested in is having a global, continuous conversation, right? We want to be able to see that conversation of science, be able to swoop in at any point, any point that I come in, I'm, oh, I'm here. This article was really interesting. This thought was great. Has there been anything done Subsequently, what is this based on, right? You can move in multi-directions, right? That's how, that's what we have the opportunity to do. And this policy is actually saying, we're going to set up a 21st century scientific communication system, never mind being stuck in that paper-based mode. It's really, really forward thinking. You almost described some sort of worldwide web with hyperlinks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, science will eventually catch up, I swear. Um, it is. It has been, you know, so frustrating to see the web optimized for like everything from, you know, buying plane tickets to shoe shopping 
but not for what it was designed to do. Except for, right? the, yeah, exactly. And that's, this is what Built the internet was designed for. Share science. Come on, people. We're almost there. Okay, I am I am cautiously optimistic. I'm very hopeful. I, I encourage people to read the text. It's not a long document, and it really does lay out, I think, with some force, why this is important and where we're headed. I have to imagine that there are going to be some roadblocks and speed bumps and hurdles. Can you talk about, you mentioned 2025 as a date. Yeah. A lot can happen. Tell me yeah. what are, what has to happen for this to become the law of the land, or, or at least the, the habit, the practice of science. Yeah, I think that really good distinction that you're making. So this is a presidential memorandum. So it is not a legislation. It's not permanent. It can be overturned, overwritten by the next administration that comes in, should they so desire. So one of the things that I would look for is an attempt, an effort in Congress to codify this. And to, in the meantime, there's a long lead time because the, the, the administration's asking federal agencies, the National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, NASA, you know, to do a lot of new things with their, their grants. So they're giving them a couple of years to look at the new guidelines that they've set out and to say, this is how we're going to implement them at NIH, for example. So what happens next is NIH will take the guidance that the White House has given them and they'll create, here's the updates to our policy. Here's exactly what we're going to ask researchers who take money from us to do. Here's how we're going to ask them to do it. How, where, where are we going to ask you to put your data? How are we going to ask you to share your article on day one? Like, is it okay for you just to slap it up on your own website or do you need to do something different, right? Those, Those are big details. questions. You, you mentioned <laughs> that, that we're going to digitize all of this information who's going to host that is is Elsevier going to host their things and my website has my thing i mean there's a lot of big yeah. outstanding questions there yeah and i think to that question the policy guidance is pretty clear so it says in the there's a bolded piece i i'm, I'm loving that you are enjoying reading the policy and saying what's important right there's ways the the default mode right for making articles available basically says you're going to make it immediately available on and publicly available with no delay in an agency approved or agency des designated repository, right? So in a, in a database that the agency says, this is where you should put it. So NIH has PubMed Central, right. which is a huge, you know, everybody's familiar. If you're in biomedicine, you know, their, their guidance, I would bet my Morgan that their guidance is going to say by default, the way you comply is to put a copy of your art, final article or your manuscript in PubMed Central. Department of Agriculture will probably do a similar thing with their Agricola database. ERIC at Department of Ed. There are federal databases. PubMed Central is also used by all HHS agencies. NASA uses it at this point. So they're gonna, there's going to be a starting point for here's where you deposit papers. And that's that can also accept the data of these papers or just the references to papers? Question, right? So, maybe. And it feels very unstructured and very large. Some of these data sets yeah. could be terabytes. And so I don't know who's yeah. going to be able to hold them. There is guidance that the White House put out. They have a, a subcommittee on open science. Um, the National Science and Technology Council has a subcommittee on open science. And last year, they put out guidance on repositories, like databases to hold data sets. And they, they did a whole analysis of desirable characteristics of these databases. So they kind of laid out when, when we say agency approved, what does that mean? What are we looking for in terms of the ability to hold large scale data sets? 
for, you know, to do it in a sustainable way and an accessible way in a way that is affordable. Those characteristics are, are laid out. So I think we'll see the agencies in their individual plans say, here are sort of discipline specific things for small data sets, medium data sets, generalist ones, you know, use Zenodo, use Figshare, use whatever. Like there, there will be more granular guidance. I think that aspect is going to be very much developed in a consult our community, like consult with the, the people who take, you know, in general, our grantees, what's working, refine, lather, rinse, refine, those, that kind of a thing. For publications, not so much. It's much more straightforward. Can you prognosticate a little bit on what you think the major publishers will do? I don't think they're going to go quietly into the night and say, well, it was fun revenue while it lasted. Is it, yeah. is it more of this charging for... Yes. Okay, it's, it's putting the money on the front end. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we're, we're seeing it already. They're saying, well, it's all fine for the government to say, by default, put a copy of your manuscript in a repository for free. But those things are just problematic. Those aren't real papers. You want the real paper, right? The real paper being the one that we formatted and you know made look pretty. We're going to give it a name. We're going to call it the version of record. Never mind that we as publishers made that term up to represent something that we want to carry the exclusive value. marketing. Exactly. So what they're going to say is too much, too many problems with those little crazy manuscripts. Pay us open access fees out of your grant and we will give you a pretty perfect version of record that we will put, we will make available on the most useful repository of all, which may be science direct for Elsevier, you know, it'll be something like it will be absolutely a push to pay us, pay us, pay us. It'll be attractive to some people because it's pay us to take it off your plate. We'll take care of it for you. We'll make it easy. I think our job as advocates and particularly as in the library community, where we're really well versed in, we can help you deposit your paper in an institutional repository and have been doing it for decades. Like yeah. we can make it easy and it's not, we're not going to charge you $11,000 a paper to do it either. The funding agencies get a say about how their money is spent. They can yes. Yes. earmark certain money for certain activities and forbid it from others. But this is the big thing. And I think one of the other things that we haven't talked about that's so important about the Biden-Harris memorandum is when you read the text of it, it's contextualized in terms of improving equity in Absolutely. benefiting from our nation's investment in science, right? It's $80 billion. It's not just about us against the publishers. It really is about making sure that, you know, anybody who's doing research has the ability to make sure their ideas get added into the mix, whether they're at Harvard or whether they're at, you know, an ag and tech school in Oklahoma. This policy is is designed to make sure that the implementation mechanisms do not marginalize, further marginalize communities who have been marginalized by having their access to these papers limited. They don't want to further marginalize those communities by leaving their voices out. They don't want to create new you know, systems of haves and have-nots on either end. So when the publishers push for, you know, we'll just take care of it and you can take the money out of your grant, well, what's a reasonable fee to do that? Like, well, what what is 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 any fee a barrier? And I think those are the questions that the agencies are wrestling with right now, and that they're going to be wrestling with. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to 
the desirability of, of APCs. And the, the flip side is that if those APCs, article processing charges, right, the, the fees to publish articles continue to be allowed, then our campuses are going to have a real issue of do we want to keep rewarding people for paying using $11,000 of their grant to not do research, but to pay nature. So tenure promotion incentives, funding incentives, those have to change. It's kind of coming back full circle to where we started that I think that's going to be something that we really have to keep an eye on and at our, our campuses, your listeners who are, you know, on college and university campuses, this is where, there's going to be a real role for saying this is what this is what we want and what we don't want. And I do have hope for this generation coming up, the the trainees right now, that they understand and expect something different from the culture, yes. the culture of science. They yeah. they aren't coming in saying I expect to sacrifice my life and my family and my mental health in order to be a professor. That's not worth it. And what can we do to restructure the research environment? I don't expect to pay this much money to publish the paper that I worked on and my colleagues peer, re- peer reviewed. What can we do differently? And I think they're going to look at it with fresh eyes. Hopefully they'll be on tenure committees soon and they'll be able to make the change then. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there's language in the, the, the memorandum that directly says, look, we want to make sure this policy is designed for early career researchers for students right it is it is something that says the update is is for everybody yes but in particular for those communities for whom the system the current system is particularly ill-suited it is just not working for the the current and upcoming generation of, of researchers it doesn't encourage them to work the way they need to be able to work to succeed and this has to change the rules well we're going to keep our eye on this as it rolls out over the next few years. But tell us about Spark, because it sounds like you're doing really important work in this space. So as I said, we're an advocacy organization. We're nested in the library community on college and university campuses. So we work in partnership with you know the folks that work in libraries that help support students, postdocs, faculty members, and doing research. So we're constantly listening and learning about what would make it easier for them to be able to do their job, right? So this kind of policy work is is right right smack in our wheelhouse. Yeah, so we work here in the US and Canada. We have a European operation and an operation in Japan and one in Africa. So we really work on the premise that it's a global research ecosystem. And, and it looks from your website, it's not just open access, it's open education and a real focus on equity, which I think is... It's so meaningful, especially now. If students want to be involved in this in some way, is there a space for them? There's absolutely. We we actually collaborate with student organizations. So if you know you're part of a National Association of Graduate and Profession, Professional and Graduate Students or US Student Association, we we partner on all kinds of advocacy programs around open textbooks, so affordable huge. <laughs> There's a whole other topic and open access, open science. We also work with student senates on student governments across the country. So if you're interested in doing like an open access policy for your campus or an open textbook program for your campus, there's ways to that to get involved with us. We can certainly work with you on those kinds of things. And then we also have lots of different opportunities to do policy advocacy as these as the agencies kind of roll out 
this is what we're planning on doing. We're going to need the community to weigh in and say, that will work for me. This won't work for me. So please look at the Spark website and, you know, reach out if you are interested in getting updates as plans come out and you want to weigh in with the agencies. We're, ha- we're organizing that and we're happy to work with you. And I'll post the link, but tell us what the website is and if there's any social media or ways that students can connect online. We're, we're sparkopen.org, all one word, S-P-A-R-C-O-P-E-N.org. Fantastic. And, and I hope that we can have you back sometime to talk about some of the other advocacy work you're doing. Keep it up. It sounds like we're making progress. I'm so excited to know that, that a group like yours is out there pushing on this because I think if the status quo is allowed, we're going to continue in this system where we keep pumping money in and not getting our research out. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. We're, we're pretty happy after 15 years of advocacy for this policy to have this administration really come through. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right, Dan, that was really great. I feel I feel comforted knowing that folks like Heather are out there fighting the good fight for open access in science and really equitable access in science. And I really had this vision of a group of librarians fighting back the system. Full body armor, uh, <laughs> swords, shields. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd appreciate the sort of game theory of how the legacy publishers are going to continue to try to make money uh, as a person who plays board games and always beats me through some loophole that I don't know about. <laughs> I thought you might appreciate, Hey, they could just front load those uh, fees or put them in a different part of the process. So they still make all the profit. Yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And, you know, I've known of researchers, I've, I've encountered researchers who in recent years have made the decision that for their lab and for their research, they were only going to publish in open access journals. Immediate Um, open access. Immediate open access journals, um, journals that have no paywall at all. But yeah, I mean, there always has been that cost with publishing in those journals. And I think at this point that has just been such a part of the process that we don't necessarily think about it, but you know, one thing that I learned from your conversation with Heather was just how much profit that some of these publishers are actually bringing in. Because as we said, I've reviewed for journals before, never got a paycheck. <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know, folks doing a lot of the work to make the whole system work aren't making money. So I'm like, well, who is making money? Yeah, where's my $2,000 going? Um, But I I did appreciate the other thing she said is with all this federally funded research, that $2,000 that's being paid every time someone publishes a paper, well, that's your $2,000. That's my $2,000 as a taxpayer. Is that where we want our money going and money that's going to the publication process? Well, those are funds that aren't going to actually doing more research. (laughs) So I think it's a really important issue. You know, a couple of things, Dan, that this made me think about that are also happening right now within the scientific landscape that I think that I think is related here. One, there's been some conversation I've heard from from some folks who are convening scientific meetings or part of scientific societies that have had this conversation kind of around the prestige signaling surrounding the big journal, the cell, the nature, the science and and I think that's one thing that those journals have sort of been able to hold over the head of researchers. Like, well, okay, as a researcher myself, it's in my best interest to really target 
those really high profile journals because just by publishing, by virtue of publishing in Nature, for example, people are going to see that on my CV, whether it's a grant review committee or a hiring committee, they're going to be impressed by that. And that's going to be beneficial to me, regardless of what the research paper actually states. It's an investment, really. I, I, I might pay a little bit of money to, to get my paper into nature, but that pays me back through grants, through tenure, through job opportunities. Uh, certainly. And, and again, I'm not insinuating that I think science that's published in those journals is probably excellent science. So I'm not saying that people publish in those journals because they paid a lot of money. Well, they do pay a lot of money, but also there's a very rigorous process to uh, to publish in those journals. But I think the the point is that just because research is published in those journals does not necessarily mean that's the best research um, or that that research should be held in higher regard um, than other research because there's a lot of reasons why certain investigators and certain research could be elevated to those platforms um, that others may have a harder time accessing. So what I've heard um, is happening in some circles is, you know, some meetings or some societies are actually saying to people presenting that, all right, you know what, we're not going to actually allow you to put journal names on the slides when you present. So Dan, if you published in Nature, you would have to Which I didn't. Arneman Nature 2022, you just put the PubMed ID or the the DOI number. So, you know, if someone wanted to, they could take a picture and they could easily look up your science. Um, but it sort of takes away that that snap value judgment of like, oh, that journal versus this other journal. Because that alone uh, should not be an indicator of the value or importance of the science. I made it a point to only publish in predatory journals. I really just felt bad for them <laughs> and I wanted them to have my money. You have to pay anyway. You, I mean, exactly. it kind of changes what is a predatory journal, right? Right, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the other thing this made me think about, Dan, was was something we talked about almost exactly five years ago, back in November 20, 2017. In the before times, yes. In the before times. So, episode 83, we talked about the rise of preprints, which at, you know, five years later, I would say preprints are firmly integrated as a as a normal part of publishing. We called it. We were ahead of the curve, Josh. <laughs> we were I, on the cutting edge back I then. I assume we made it popular just through our I think we did. one podcast. I, I think we did. Uh, but, you know, sites like BioArchive, um, you know, it's becoming standard practice now for researchers to immediately put their work up on BioArchive, uh, get feedback. Uh, as far as I know, there's not a cost to that. Um, and, there's been increased practice of actually counting preprints and allowing a listing of these preprints on things like grant reviews, job applications, uh, going into promotion decisions. And it makes me wonder, Dan, you know, as that continues to be a common practice, will there ever become a point where that becomes the end game? <laughs> where, okay, well, this preprint situation, I'm immediately sharing my full research article with the world and there's this infrastructure to have a dialogue and get feedback that also can be publicly viewed. Maybe that's enough. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see how that has become more prevalent um, and standard practice. Well, and that opens up new concerns and new challenges. Um, And I think we saw this also during COVID 
there's early data out about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine based on some study or some meta-analysis. And it takes us months or years until we can sort out whether those, uh, whether that research was run properly. But in the meantime, it gets picked up in the news and people start changing their behavior based on it. So um, I think you and I are going to be talking about this publishing world for a long time to come because every time we make an advance, it opens up new opportunities for people to cheat at whatever that new thing is. And so, you know, scientific publishing, scientific communication is never going to be perfect but I think this is a step in the right direction, making it more publicly accessible so that scientists themselves can respond, react, and uh, review without that paywall. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how some of these changes with journals and this new policy and, and these new platforms like BioArchive, how they work together to evolve this process that, that as Heather talked about, really is kind of archaic and developed based on completely different technology and considerations than this digital age we live in now. You got it, Josh. Well, whatever happens, whether it's micro publications or is you can only tweet your scientific research, whatever happens, you and I are going to be here to talk about it. Uh, listeners, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear about it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet while that still exists, at hellophd. If you like us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the quadruple, quintuple, uh, whatever comes after that money, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. And if you know how Mastodon works, reach out to us. (laughs) No one knows. No one knows. I tried, Dan, and it was impenetrable to me. There are 13,000 possible Mastodon servers. We might see you on one of them someday. (laughs) Maybe we will. All right, Dan. Well, this has been great. Uh, Looking forward to talking to you again next time. And we'll see everybody in D.C. who is attending ASCB's Cell Bio 2022 on December 4th. See you then.